Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Lime Ninja Radio. I am your host, McKay Rippey, and with me is Aurora. Hi, everybody. And Aurora, are you finally dug out? I'm finally dug out. Uh, for those of you who don't know, we're right in the middle of that snowstorm Marcus that the weather channels are all talking about. Not as bad as Boston, but we got our fair share out here in cow country. The cows are up to their tummies in snow now. Yep. We shoveled the driveway once yesterday. We woke up this morning and it was the exact same thing. It was like we, we hadn't even done anything. So that was exciting. Very exciting. So today's interview is with Alexander Michaels, and he is a research associate at the Linus Pauling Institute. Uh, great interview. I really like talking to him. And I think the more we understand about the very basics and inexpensive interventions like vitamin C, uh, the better off we're going to be in the Lyme community. So, Aurora, why don't you tell us about Dr. Michaels? All righty. Alexander J. Michaels holds a Ph.D. in biochemistry and biophysics from Oregon State University and is currently a research associate at the Linus Pauling Institute at Oregon State. Researchers at the Linus Pauling Institute investigate the role that vitamins, essential minerals, and compounds from plants play in human aging, immune function, and chronic diseases. A major emphasis is to understand the role of oxidative stress and inflammation in disease etiology and the preventative effects of dietary constituents with antioxidants or anti-inflammatory properties. Dr. Michael has written on molecular and cell biology, biochemistry, oxidative stress, antioxidants, and clinical biochemistry, among other topics. He has been researching vitamin C since 2007. All right. What happened in the middle there? Did the cat bite your toe or something? A little bit. A little bit of that. <laughs> All right. Here's our interview with Dr. Alexander Michaels. Okay. So let's, let's jump in here. So my first question for you, you've been at Linus Pauling for almost 15 years now. And True. How, how, how did that happen? Because it's not the normal research institute. That's true. But um, so actually the, the reason I've been or I started at Linus Pauling Institute uh, in 1999 as a graduate student. Wow. Um, and that was uh, I was searching for research institutions um, to do my graduate studies in. Uh, I, I graduated from the University of Illinois in uh, 1998 and uh, I applied a across the country looking for graduate schools. And um, Oregon was kind of my, well, let's just apply. Let's see what happens. All right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm, I, I thought to myself, I'm not really going to move all the way out to Oregon. But, um, but then when I came out here for the interview, um, they, the Institute really impressed me with the way they were doing uh, kind of a multidisciplinary approach mm -hmm. to science. Um, I had interviewed at many different graduate schools, and most of the graduate schools that were out there uh, said they were doing multidisciplinary programs, and this was in the field of biochemistry. Mm -hmm. But they looked very like, well, we're we're doing multidisciplinary approaches, but those people are across campus or occasionally we get together for a journal club or something like that. Uh, at the Linus Pauling Institute, we were all in one building 
and you have um, people from pharmacy, nutrition, uh, molecular biology, um, animal study, animal studies, or animal sciences. Sorry, uh, um, all together in one building, working together. I mean, next door to each other. Right. And um, and it was really fascinating. And I realized when I went back home after my trip out here is that I wasn't really that interested in working with the biochemistry department at, at Oregon State because I found that to be a, a typical biochemistry department. The, department. There's nothing wrong with it, mm-hmm. but it was uh, the multidisciplinary approach and the focus on human health that I really liked about the Linus Pauling Institute, and I thought that's where I wanted to work. And uh, <laughs> 15 years later, haven't left yet. <laughs> <laughs> so what advantages to having you know, uh, a, a nutrition, bump into a nutritionist in the hallway or you know, somebody else in the cafeteria getting a cup of coffee or whatever goes on there? It's like, yeah. what, what does that well, lend to your research particularly? Oh, well, I mean, most of it's perspective. I mean, um, everyone has a perspective as, as they are going through their studies, trying to figure out a particular problem. Yes. But then you, as I think you drill down and you get to a very specific question, you you lose some of that perspective. You kind of put some blinders on because you're focusing on this one thing. And then someone will come along and say, well, wait a second, you didn't think about this. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be an issue in your situation when it comes to human beings or the grander picture um, when it comes to public health uh, or, you know, or just, you know, understanding uh, physiology. I mean, I'm, I'm a biochemist by uh, study, you know, right. uh, I'm not a uh, physiologist, mm-hmm. I'm not a nutritionist, and, and when you're trying to do with, deal with things that are active compounds in human health, you have to understand all of that. And so, and, but then you also have to understand things like analytical chemistry uh, and basic molecular techniques to get at those questions when you're trying to do a study. So we have the spectrum. We have people who are, are interested in public health and interested in nutrition, but we also have the people who are interested in the techniques that will give you the state of art, state of the art approaches to arrive at, uh, conclusions, you know, that, that may be. So you, yeah, I, I've I've had many conversations in the hallway where we just try to say, okay, uh, we want to look at this, right? But we realize there's an aspect of what you're doing, mm-hmm. uh, either in you know in nutrition or pharmacy, let's say, that impacts what I'm trying to do. So, can you give me some clues, some pointers, <laughs> yes, on how to navigate those hurdles? Yeah. And and then also every once in a while, can we work together on something? Hmm. Uh, and it makes it so much easier to work together on something when you're in the same building with somebody because you can talk about the the issues that you may have had or may overcome before they arise. Yeah, brilliant. 
and uh, I think the uh, so you know as I said I started as a biochemist and I think one of the things that over the last um, especially over the last seven years since I was uh, been a research associate at the Lions Pauling Institute was this focus on nutrition mm-hmm. that has been really uh, important because I, I approached um, vitamin C when I first started doing my work as kind of a as an interesting uh, biochemical problem that needed to be solved. And which problem is that? And that was um, when I first started my work, it was on vitamin C changes with age. And we were looking at uh, an animal model, but Mm -hmm. it was a a rat model for aging. And it's been used uh, extensively by the National Institute of Aging. Um, It's a Fisher 344 rat. And and it's considered one of the gold standards for aging research. And we found that uh, in the liver of these animals, vitamin C levels declined. And um, what, you know, it's a very complicated situation for a rat who can synthesize vitamin C, and they synthesize vitamin C in the liver. What is going on there? You know, is it a loss of... um, vitamin C synthesis? Is it a loss of transport? Is it some other process that's causing vitamin C levels to be depressed with mm-hmm. age? Mm-hmm. And so I just saw, you know, approached it as, okay, this is just, here are the possibilities. Let's start eliminating them one by one and see what we can figure out. Um, and it was a very dry <laughs> approach to it, but, uh, was there, but, an a- you know, was there an answer at the end of it? The answer uh, apparently was that the vitamin C transporters, um, the specific transporters for ascorbic acid in the rat liver were declining with age. And I attempted to figure out why that was occurring, but I never really came to a, um, a definite conclusion why that was occurring. I got kind of sidetracked into uh, um, understanding the vitamin C transporters themselves. And that's kind of where the bulk of my um, research was as a a graduate student was understanding vitamin C transporters. And And they were really new at the time. Uh, The the first year of my graduate studies, they had just been discovered. And are so these the transports in the intestines as well as in in the liver, or is this just liver specific? No, they um, they are the ones that are also present in the intestines. And how about the immune system? Is, is it the same? Yeah, actually, so there's only two known uh, transporters that are specific for vitamin C. They're called the um, SVCT transporters, which stands for the sodium-dependent vitamin C transporter, SVCT. Okay. Um, and uh, most of your cells in the body contain SVCT2. Um but SVCT1 is also present in some cells. So if, you're, if you have a general question like what transporters are available um, in my tissue of interest, uh, the, the standard answer will be SVCT2 will be there no matter what. Okay. But SVCT1 may also be there depending on the tissue. And then this... yeah, there's only one exception to that rule. I should state real quickly. <laughs> okay, is that uh, is is red blood cells? Red blood cells have none. 
Zero, huh? Yeah, it's a very it's a strange system, but uh, um, there's some theories as to why, and that's probably because of the amount of iron that's present in red blood cells. Ah, uh, it's a safety mechanism. So the, the it, vitamin again, it, C it, would degrade the iron. Is that what would happen? Uh, maybe it might actually. I mean, depending on if a hemoglobin degraded. Mm-hmm. Um, it could vitamin C can react with iron, okay, and that could be a good thing or a bad thing depending on how controlled the situation is. Right. Okay. So let's take a step back here and just kind of vitamin C one hundred one. Why is vitamin C so important to the human? Population? Well, without it, we'd die. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like with like most um, vitamins, uh, if you don't have vitamin C in your diet, um, you will eventually develop a deficiency disease. And the deficiency disease for vitamin C is known as scurvy. Right. Um, so scurvy is actually a, a multitude of symptoms. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a syndrome. Uh, that all have to do with the enzymatic roles of vitamin C. So vitamin C acts as a co-substrate. We we tend to call it a co-substrate, but really what it is is a a rescue mechanism. Okay. Um, uh, Enzymes in your body, such as the ones involved in the development of collagen, uh, have iron centers. Some some have copper centers that also are, are important. Vitamin C is important in, but iron or copper centers. And when the enzyme proceeds through its normal cycle of doing whatever it does, in which case, or in the case of collagen, we have a hydroxylation reaction that's occurring. And every once in a while, it'll mess up, and it'll do what's called an uncoupled reaction. And um, become irrevert or sorry, say this differently. Uh, The enzyme will become oxidized. The iron center will become oxidized, and it'll get stuck. And so, what vitamin C does is it comes in and reduces that iron center so that it can restart. Okay, so let's pause there for a second and just help some people here who who aren't quite as uh, facile in this conversation. So collagen is in skin is part of the connective tissue in skin, right? It's actually every collagen makes is one of the most uh, abundant proteins in your entire body. Okay. So, so skin tissue, tendons and ligaments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a connective tissue, basically uh, membranes that hold kind of all your tissues together. Your gums. Is that why you bleed with gums? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Gums are, are one of the most, uh, uh, bleeding gums are one of the most prevalent signs of scurvy because, yeah, the collagen matrix there, and probably due to damage that occurs through normal eating of food. As, as well. Um, okay. And, but skin, you know, old wounds opening up, uh, uh, that's a, one, of the, uh, one of the hallmarks of scurvy is like you have an old wound that you thought was closed a long, long time ago, and all of a sudden it, it opens up again. It fell apart. And uh, also bruising. Uh, is mm-hmm. another sign of scurvy, and that's just due to the fragility of the matrix. You know, you're no longer holding together uh, as well as you could before. Interesting. Um, and so, so when okay, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Oh, I was going to say when vitamin C levels are low, 
you your collagen matrix doesn't form as well. It doesn't. It's not to, to say that it doesn't form at all. Right. It just doesn't do it as well as it did before, and it's not as strong as it was before. So you start to get these uh, incremental increases or or small damages uh, to the body that kind of just keep going and and don't heal. You know. Um, actually, it's really interesting. I got I got forwarded a article just on Friday about um, a story on the BBC. A, a boy in, uh, I think it was Wales, uh, died of, they suspect he died of scurvy. No kidding. And, um, and it was because he showed a lot of the hallmarks of uh, scurvy, which are the bleeding gums, the bruising. Um, there's also um, corkscrew hair growth. It's kind of an interesting symptom. Um, where your hair grows kind of in a, a curly pattern, mm-hmm. uh, um, I don't know what to call it, a coil almost. Uh, and then, uh, let's see, uh, subdermal bleeding. Um, and, and there, there was this, this big story on whether there was going to be an inquest into the, uh, parents for neglect. Um, you know, scurvy is very, unlikely to occur in modern age because right. it takes so little vitamin C for it to uh, be prevented that uh, stories of scurvy are very rare. Um, so anyway, um, so I guess I should, I should back up and just talk about in general scurvy is, is a, is where your body has so little vitamin C in it that the enzymes that are required for, uh, the enzymes that require vitamin C for normal function can no longer function properly, or at least at peak efficiency. And so this manifests as problems with collagen, um, neurotransmitter synthesis is another uh, thing that requires vitamin C, certain neurotransmitters, certain peptides in the body require vitamin C for maturation, and um, there's also some other issues with carnitine biosynthesis, and um, which carnitine is involved in uh, en- energy in the cell. Right. Um, it's and, a bodybuilder supplement, right? <laughs> you're right. The bodybuilder supplement. Yeah. Um, and also some some other issues with um, uh, well there. There hasn't been um, any link to scurvy yet, but you know there's some other enzymes that do require vitamin C that would suspect to be impacted. They're less function or less critical for preventing you from dying, <laughs> right. but you're not you're not optim or sorry you're not operating at peak health, right or efficiency. Yeah, I totally get it. And then so, what's, I mean, what's the role with, with C in the immune system? Okay. The falling, immune system, yeah. um, that, that's a really interesting, I mean, the, the role with vitamin C in the immune system is kind of vague even now. Hmm. Um, we've, even though Linus Pauling in 1970 um, was a strong advocate for vitamin C in the immune system, when he wrote uh, Vitamin C in the Common Cold, he even admitted in the book that we really don't understand the roles of vitamin C in the immune system. Hmm. 
And this was before the antioxidant revolution of uh, the 1980s, where you know we suddenly realized that there are these things called antioxidants, and they fight off these dangerous things called reactive oxygen species right. uh, that may lead to so many different diseases. <clears throat> um, but even then, um, vitamin C was was earmarked as an antioxidant. It's a very good antioxidant, but whether or not that's the reason it functions in the immune system is still really Uh, unknown. So, so, uh, I guess we could start with a little bit of a timeline. Um, before Linus Pauling wrote his book, there were some trials with vitamin C and infectious diseases, and they were few and far between and, and not, I don't want to call them poorly done because at the time we really didn't know much about vitamin C and uh, its roles in the body. So it was hard to say they could have done any better (laughs) because they didn't know any better. Um, And, but it did seem to show that vitamin C did have this effect on immunity. You know, people were feeling better and doing better with vitamin C supplements. And then Linus Pauling wrote his book, but even afterwards, the studies weren't um, done that could show. I mean, there were some studies that show that vitamin C was important in individual immune cells. Um, Vitamin C is very important in um, uh, lymphocytes, especially the white blood cells that that cause uh, oxidative bursts. So if you if your your body is um, exposed to a, a foreign particle, uh, whether it's bacteria or a virus or something else that's not supposed to be there, uh, one of the defense mechanisms is to do an oxidative burst, and that is all these reactive oxygen species flood out of a cell hmm. and try to damage whatever is invading. Um, and vitamin C not only showed, or sorry, when cells were supplemented with vitamin C, they showed a stronger oxidative burst. And the, one of the possible explanations for that is that the cells were protected from their own oxidative burst. Ah. So they, they had vitamin C in the cell that allowed them to do a stronger and more sustained burst and then be immune or have diminished damage to themselves. So it allowed them to, to operate for longer. Um, but they've also had some, there's also some evidence that uh, vitamin C may uh, improve, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh phagocytosis, which is um, engulfing right. uh, bacteria or viruses, or, or I mean, bacteria mostly is what uh, phagocytosis is inter- or involved in. Mm-hmm. And um, the m- movement of immune cells uh, towards a uh, towards a, an invading pathogen. So literally getting from point A to point B. Yeah, that, I mean, but the, the the research on this is very limited, hmm. uh, and the 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 reason it might help, you know, getting from point A to point B is is um, cytokines. There are inflammatory markers called cytokines in the body. Yes, that 
that kind of signal where, where something is going wrong. And uh, vitamin C may influence cytokine production. Huh. Uh, the other, and there, there is some limited information in guinea pigs about vitamin C um, influencing antibody production. <clears throat> but honestly, in general, we, we know very little, even today. Um, we, we have, you know, there's this general theme where vitamin C can improve immunity, but the specifics kind of get muddled. Even, even today, huh? It's, even today. It's yeah. So and complex. it's mainly because, I mean, there's, you could point to several reasons why this is the case. One of them is that we only are now starting to appreciate the chemistry of vitamin C and some of the experiments that we're doing. Hmm. Um, we can get some, uh, I should say, oh, how do I put this? Uh, well, uh, I guess the way we put it in a paper that we recently wrote is artifacts. You get, um, based on this, the experiment that you're conducting, you can get a, a, an effect of vitamin C that is not specific to vitamin, vitamin C, but C, it's specific. Right. It's it's specific to the setup yes. that you you created. Yes. Cell culture is one of those situations. Cell culture, vitamin C is terrible in cell culture, <laughs> um, and and you have to look at every paper that was done in cell culture with a grain of salt because um, I, I have to discredit mo or discount most of the accounts with cell culture because they just don't give you the the situation that's occurring inside your body. It's an artificial situation, yes. and you just get all these results that don't mean anything. So th this is a little flippant, and I don't mean it that way, but you could throw, I don't know, sugar in there and still get a result. Yeah, <laughs> right. I, and I don't mean, I mean that literally. Yeah, but but I uh, yeah, you could you could throw a lot of different things in there and get something out of it. Mm -hmm. And then just say, and try to making a claim on that's going to impact health right. is ugh, crazy over the, over the top. because your body is not a tissue culture machine. <laughs> that's for sure. Much more complex than that. Um, the other issue is that a lot of vitamin C research in the past has been done in animals and depending on the animal, it may not represent what's going on in human beings. Um, one, one issue that we've brought up more recently, and uh, my recent paper on myths, artifacts, and um, fatal flaws, looks at the use of animal models for vitamin C research. And, and one thing we are starting to understand, or at least we're starting to see evidence of, is that rats and mice are not very good models for vitamin C in uh, as it relates to people. Yeah. And, and that's and, just because they synthesize it. Right. I've been reading in art articles here and there about the problems with mice and rat models in general and the, the transfer over to to humans. It's yeah, just, actually what's a really, sticky wicket. It's a very sticky wicket because they are our best models 
when it comes to many different things. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are best um, supported model when it comes to the research industry, right. when we're dealing with uh, molecular tools. Mm -hmm. And those, these are very powerful molecular tools. I, there's nothing, I have nothing against these tools. They're great. But when you're dealing with a model that may not be representing something that's going on in human beings, you have to say, do we put all this investment into a model that's only going to give us a limited amount of information? So do you still and think these models are good places to start to get basic? Or do honestly, you think they lead you down too many blind alleys? I, I think it's, it's a good place to start for certain question, but not necessarily for every question. And I think anyone who's interested in vitamin C research should um, really avoid them uh, because, <laughs> okay. well, no, it, it's true because you get, I, I, I have been reviewing papers for years now mm -hmm. using um, mice and rats as a, as a model system. And one of the questions I often shoot back to the people who write these papers is, how does vitamin C synthesis impact your results or your interpretation of the results? Right. Pretty simple These question. animals yeah. synthesize enough vitamin C, that, depending on the model, keep them... I mean, I've, I've seen levels all over the place, but... Um, some animals keep vitamin C levels high in the bloodstream all the time. And if you're giving them vitamin C in the diet, what impact do you expect to happen? Right. Um, they, they're already fine. <laughs> it's not a vitamin for them. It's yes. just another, uh, it's an antioxidant that they produce. Yes. Uh, but one of the you know, models I wish was more popular was the guinea pig. And the, because guinea pigs do not synthesize vitamin C. Okay. And uh, an interesting side note to that is that they've have they've lost that vitamin C synthesis. Not, I don't think it's as far back as human beings, but they've had time to adapt to that loss, like we have. Mm -hmm. So it it should really you can't really use a model that. Um, like, for example, you can take a rat or a mouse and knock out its synthesis. They have a genetic uh, glonolactone oxidase knockout mouse. But the problem with that, and glonolactone oxidase is the enzyme that produces vitamin C. Um, or, sorry, I should call it ascorbic acid. It's not a vitamin for them. Um, and when you knock it out, you don't fully recapitulate an animal that has lost its synthesis because you don't have all these compensatory changes. Right. These these required you know many many years of evolution. Right. Like so I th think thousands, um, right? <laughs> or hundreds of thousands. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so there was an interesting paper that was done, and getting back to the red blood cells, they were looking at how vitamin C gets into the red blood cells um, in various animals, and and it actually occurs through a, a different class of transporters. I said they didn't have the vitamin C transporters, but what they do have is uh, glucose transporters that can also can transport the oxidized form of vitamin C, okay. which is called dehydroascorbic acid. And what they found was that in animals that synthesize vitamin C, um, they kind of took 
up vitamin C slowly, but, uh, you know, still through these glucose transporters. Um, and it was a different, there were different glucose transporters expressed on the surface of these red blood cells than they, they compared synthesizing animals versus non-synthesizing animals. I should put it that way. One of the big issues that this can be, um, can impact is the immune system. Um, there, there's, uh, the, some evidence out there that the immune system or inflammatory responses in mice and rats is fundamentally different than human beings. Hmm. I don't know about the impact of vitamin C. We'll have to see on that. Fascinating. Well, you have been an amazing wealth of information. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I, I tend to get off topic sometimes, but no, um, I, do you I, have any... Do you have any other specific questions of vitamin C and Lyme disease? I mean, I, I know there's not very much out there. Right, specifically, but so, but it's the basics. I mean, kind of my whole take on the thing is, is people, you know, are, are pushing their physicians to get antibiotics. Yeah. But you also need to take care of the field, so to speak, so that the, the antibiotics are working in a healthy, environment as or as healthy as possible a supported environment and vitamin c is one of those critical pieces along with d and 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 several other well many that's other true things, magnesium. yeah so i mean to, to bottom line and and you really alluded to this with as we age the our, the vitamin c may not be absorbed as well or transported as well mm -hmm. so bottom line is how much should people be taking and at what ages do you start bumping up the the levels that's a good question and it's really hard to make a recommendation for that okay uh, i won't i won't the, pin you down yeah the studies well the studies haven't been done that's the that's one of the problems ah. um the most comprehensive study on vitamin c transport that was ever done um suggests that um, you know, vitamin C absorption is is maximal uh, in the intestine when we take uh, 200 milligrams uh, at a time. Um, but that's just uh, a limited. I mean, 200 milligrams of vitamin C is 100% bioavailable. But that doesn't necessarily say that that's the maximum amount you should be taking. Right. Um, it just shows that, you know, at one given instance, your body can only absorb a certain amount and then the, the percent absorption goes down from there. Okay. Um, because the, the transporters get saturated. So that's kind of like the 600 milligrams of calcium at a time. Right. They, yeah. they just, they just get saturated and you yep. can't get any more in there. Okay. Now that doesn't mean if you come back later with more vitamin C, you can't get more in there. It just, you know, there's just, it's a time slash dose effect, you know, you have to spread it out a little bit. And right. we, we often tell people that when you're taking vitamins, it is better to split up your doses throughout the day than to just take one dose at one particular time. One giant mega dose. Even if, uh, right, right, one giant mega dose. Well, even yeah, like a thousand milligrams would be, if you're only absorbing 200 milligrams at a time, a thousand would be, a you know, just way overkill. Yeah. Y yeah. Um, maybe. now <laughs> maybe, yeah, let's put it that way. Maybe. Um, I, I tell the Lions Pauling Institute recommendation currently stands at 400 milligrams a day um, because studies have shown that uh, approximately 200 milligrams a day will, for most people, will get to peak plasma levels. And um, 
but just barely. And so we, we kind of take a margin of error on that because the studies were only done in limited numbers of people. They were all young, healthy adults. Right. Um, what happens with aging? What happens with disease? What happens with, we don't know. Mm-hmm. So we kind of go above that and we want to be beyond what we call, if you look at the difference between plasma levels of vitamin C and the amount that you're ingesting, there's a, what we call a sigmoidal curve. There's a, um, it's an S shaped curve. Mm-hmm. So, at low doses, your plasma levels don't change much, but you're, you're, set, you're kind of delivering vitamin C to the tissues that critically need it. Once the tissues start to accumulate, your plasma levels go up, and they go up sharply with the uh, intake. And then they just kind of plateau around this 200 milligrams per day mark that we were talking about. Um, but you're still kind of on the edge of that S-shaped curve. And where you'd like to be is beyond that because you may be different than these test subjects right. that uh, were that these trials were conducted on and or some other factor may influence your absorption. You want to be above that S-shaped curve. So 400 milligrams a day gives you that safety margin. Um, what it would be, it would be wonderful if someone would do the same study on people who are older and especially for people who have um, polymorphisms in the vitamin C transporters uh, to understand how that may impact absorption. Right. But a safe bet for most people is 400 milligrams a day. Now, if someone says, well, should I not be taking 1,000 milligrams a day? And I say, well, um, there's no harm in it. <laughs> for most people, right. there's no harm in taking a thousand milligrams a day. Some people take a thousand milligrams and a uh, thousand milligram tablet and break it up into two. Take one in the morning, take in the evening. Um, but what we still would love to understand is how vitamin C might impact, and maybe larger doses of vitamin C may impact the microbiome the uh, bacteria that are uh, growing in your intestines, right. that is where the vitamin big, C could have, yeah. large doses of vitamin C could have a big impact, yeah. and the, we just don't know yet. The big black box. <laughs> there's, so, now, there's so much happening down there, and there's so much research being begun. It's going to be, it's, it's really going to be fascinating where this all shakes out the biome research. Yeah. Oh yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I, I keep looking at it, hoping that I can gather, you know, some small pieces of information that I can use in my own research and figure out a way of getting in there myself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although it's dirty work. Yes. Very funny. <laughs> um, and now another, another issue that I should bring up and I know it's been postulated with Lyme disease Mm-hmm. is intravenous vitamin C. Have you heard anything about that? Yeah, of course. Um, and I wish I could say more about it. Um, intravenous vitamin C, though, is a completely different animal than vitamin C that you take orally. Right. Um, it may have influences on bacterial or viral infections, and some people have used it successfully to fight off bacterial and viral, viral infections, but the research is really not there yet. Okay. We, we need much more research to understand how this can be effective. I'm, I think it's a great area of research. I think we should do much more research into it. Uh, but 
I caution anyone who's going that route. Um, you know, you have to be aware that the research currently doesn't support its use. Doesn't support it. And, and although cancer, unless it's in cancer treatment, but that's a different story. <laughs> right. right. Let's, <laughs> let's leave that, that one. Alone. Yeah. That's so, a different and, topic of conversation. Yeah, and, it, and it's important to note, even if, you know, a natural substance, so forth and so on, using it in, and that's absolutely a, a mega dose intravenously yes. is not using it as a vitamin. It's using it as a substance, as a drug. It's kind of like a drug. Yeah, yeah. totally. Even though it's a um, even though it's relative, drug. it is relatively safe. I mean, orally vitamin C is very has has a wide safety margin for use. Um, very few side effects have been reported with vitamin C supplementation, and even with intravenous injection, very few side effects have been reported. Really? It's a remarkably safe compound, but that doesn't say that everybody should try it. Right. And and that it, there won't be some negatives to it div- discovered, and that's why the research is is needed in this field. Terrific, Dr. Michaels. Let's end there. Uh, okay. Again, again, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, you've oh, been, no problem. <laughs> you've been a real sport, especially putting up with uh, Skype. Oh yeah, and its vagrancies. <laughs> Well, if you have any um, any questions or any clarifications of anything I've said, go ahead and send me an email. I'm available all the time. Um, I I actually deal with public inquiries um, quite a bit uh, as part uh, part time communications officer for the Linus Pauling Institute. Okay, so. fantastic. And just for somebody listening who's interested in learning more about the institute and vitamin C, maybe specifically, what are some good web resources? Well, I would always direct anyone uh, that was interested in, in the Linus Pauling Institute to the Linus Pauling Institute website, which is lpi.oregonstate.edu. But on that site is the Micronutrient Information Center, uh, which gives uh, a, res- a resource for vitamin, minerals, and uh, phytochemicals okay. that are in the diet. And that can be found at the Lions Pauling Institute website. It's it's uh, I think it's lpi.oregonstate.edu/infocenter. Okay, I'll put up um, a direct link for that. I'll hunt that down. Okay, and that and, yeah. and that's a great resource. We we just evaluate evidence based. Uh, we take an evidence based approach to micronutrient research and trying to figure out the health effects. Uh, of various um, vitamins and minerals and phytochemicals, and it's free. I mean, it's a freely available database, and it also has links to other resources that may be relevant for people's uh, specific inquiries. And we are always willing to take questions from the public, um, uh, either directly through our website, uh, email, or our Facebook page. Cool. Or or direct phone calls. If you want to call us and ask us a question, go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> the old-fashioned Someone way. will answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Terrific. Thanks again. Have a wonderful day. Yeah. And I hope, uh, I hope, I hope the snow's not too, too bad. <laughs> not, I think it's finally starting to lighten up. So, okay. <laughs> no, I think I think we're like six, six, seven inches, something like that. So. Oh, nothing. <laughs> right. Just enough to make it pretty. Right. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I hope you have a good day, too. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Great interview.
And what really stuck with me was his comment about uh, researching nutrition, and especially in lab studies. And he was talking about uh, lab results with mice and rats, and how humans only had 14% of the functionality that a rat had in converting vitamin C. Was that correct? Something like that. I don't remember the exact number, but yeah, it's they call them models. So they're rat models and mice models, and they're modeling human function. And it's not 100%, but you need to start somewhere. Yeah. And uh, so it's a good place to start. And a lot of research doesn't go beyond that because it's just too cost prohibitive. So we're left with uh, making guesses, and then it's up to the clinicians to figure out where to go from there, if it's worth pursuing or there's more harm than good. So that's... Well, it's just, it's amazing to me how how complicated human human nutrition and trials on for human nutrition is. Yeah, so whenever yeah. <laughs> you read something in the newspaper that tells you without a doubt, like vitamin E helps or doesn't help, take that with a grain of salt. It may or may not be true. So you really have to check your resources and have, have somebody you know and trust who's going to guide you through nutrition. I think that's one of the most important takeaways from this. All righty, that'll wrap up for today. If you'll do me a favor, go and look us up on Facebook. Just type Lime Ninja Radio into the search bar. And then once you're there... You can like us. Yes, please hit the like button. And also you can leave a comment about this interview. You'll see Dr. Michael's picture right at the top and just leave a comment there. And if you want to, you can message us. Yes, please do. (laughs) All right, Aurora, and wrap it all up and tell us what today's ninja fact is. Did you know a ninja's favorite drink is water? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.